0: Uh, It's been said that the best way to get ready for tomorrow is to be ready today. The best way to get ready for tomorrow is to be ready for today. We're continuing in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is giving instruction to his disciples in this final, lengthier discourse, uh, preparing them for his departure, as he is nearing the cross and the resurrection, and he is instructing them in what it looks like to be prepared for his coming, to wait upon him, to be prepared for his return. And this idea of being prepared for his coming is captured quite well uh, by the late Christian Quaker Thomas Kelly. Uh, Thomas Kelly writes about his return from Europe during the Second World War. And he says this, One returns from Europe with the sound of weeping in one's ears in order to say, Don't be deceived. You must face destiny. Preparation is only possible now. Do not be fooled by your sunny skies. When the rains descend and the floods come and the winds blow and beat upon your house, he emphasizes, your house, your private dwelling, your own family, your own fair hopes, your strong muscles, your own body, your soul itself, then it is well nigh too late to build a house. You can only go inside what house you have and pray that it is founded upon the rock. When the rains descend, when the floods come, when uh, the Lord Jesus comes... Whatever house you've built, whatever life you have built, whatever you've built it upon, that is where you're going to have to go and find refuge. Whatever that has been founded upon, and in Matthew 25, Jesus is continuing this all of it discourse, this sermon. He provides a parable, a couple parables. So we're looking this morning at the parable of the ten virgins or young women, young bridesmaids, and there's a suddenness. Uh, that Jesus is emphasizing about the nature of his return. That because the time is going to be sudden, he wants to teach his disciples how to prepare. Not later, but to be prepared now. How does this parable teach us uh, about what it means to be prepared? So Matthew 25, let's give our attention to God's word, verses 1 through 13. The parable of the ten virgins. Listen now to God's word. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Here's the central point of this parable that I hope that we we grasp. That is, Christians are called to be people who wait for Christ with with the wisdom to know that the master may be. Long delayed in his coming. Christians are called to be people who wait for the Lord Jesus with the wisdom to know that the Master may be delayed in his coming. Waiting takes on a particular emphasis in this parable. Waiting can be very difficult in life. We recall one of perhaps the most well known episodes and important, certainly, episodes in Israel's life in the Old Testament in Exodus 32. The people of God had been taken out of slavery in Egypt, wandering through the wilderness. And you come to Exodus 32, the story of the golden calf. And this is what it reads. When the people saw that Moses was delayed, there's that word. In English, he's delayed to come down from the mountain. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, let us make gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt... We don't know what has become of him. What a commentary on the parable that we're considering, where true worship, true devotion to our Lord can actually turn to idolatry when we do not know how to wait. What fills our hearts and our minds when we're having to suffer long, when we're having to wait, when we're having to be patient? What what fills our lives? What what draws our attention, what uh, what kind of character comes out in times of waiting. Waiting takes on a central theme in this parable, uh, waiting for this delayed bridegroom. And to understand this story in this parable that Jesus gives to us, uh, we're brought back into the custom of weddings in Jesus' day in the villages of the ancient Near East. And it was customary in that time for there to be a high focus upon the bridegroom. You may have uh, noticed that in the parable there's no mention of the bride um, of the bride, and people have asked about that. The focus is upon the bridegroom. It's kind of a bit opposite in our own culture and day uh, in the modern world, at least here in our society and culture. It's usually a much more greater interest and focus upon the bride. You attend a wedding ceremony, and kind of central to the ceremony is when the bride comes down the aisle, and people, naturally, they know to stand up, and there's a focus upon the bride coming down, and what is she wearing? Right? Uh, the groom sometimes won't even come down the center. He'll just he'll come down the side, maybe with a couple other groomsmen. I don't know if this still happens or takes place today, but in years past, uh, local papers in towns would write about, a wedding that took place. And they would give particular attention and they would describe the wedding dress that the bride was wearing even. Uh, My parents were married in 1966 in Indiana. And I was able to obtain from my mom one of the local papers addressing their own wedding. And it read this, Crooked Creek Baptist Church was the scene yesterday of the wedding of Miss Virginia Ann Pearson and Howard Allen Snyder. Mr. and Mrs. Ralph C. Pearson, 5846 Grandview Drive, are parents of the bride. The bridegroom is the son of Mr. and Mrs. John W. Snyder of Brownsburg. The bride wore an organza gown with a Chantilly lace bodice bodice, and sleeves accented with pearls. An open crown of re-embroidered lace accented with pearls secured her veil. She carried white roses and yellow miniature carnations. Attendants wore gowns with olive green lace bodices and yellow gorgette skirts. Mentions flower girls. The groom was also present. No. It, it doesn't actually say that, but you can imagine that's, that's how it is. There's really no attention there uh, for the groom. People aren't that interested But in Jesus' day, the focus was centered on uh, the bridegroom. And when Jesus told this parable, his original hearers understood the backdrop and the background. Most of the time, the bridegroom would first travel through the village to the bride's home or the family of the bride. And there at her home or her parents' home would be a smaller gathering, smaller ceremony with closer friends, family, family. Um, Maybe some festivities. It might last a day. If it was a a wealthier young man, this could last for days, even up to a week. And then after that smaller ceremony with closer family, friends, intimates, uh, they would then begin to travel back to the groom's home in a procession through the village streets, perhaps greeting and meeting people. Maybe a few would join them in the procession. And it would be back at the groom's home that they would have a more extensive ceremony and feasting. And I think that's the feast in the background mentioned here in the parable that Jesus is referring to. But it seems that at the bride's home and in the procession through the streets, time has gotten away from them. A time may have been certainly was, in fact, uh, viewed a little differently in that day and and still around parts of the world today than the way we view time. If the ceremony uh, is mentioned as 7 p.m., we know it's going to be around that time. Not so in our Lord's day. The groom is taking his sweet time. But what happens when the groom is delayed? When those who would normally join the procession through the village, perhaps in the evening coming out with torches or lamps to light the way... And the groom is nowhere to be seen. The focus of of Jesus's of his parable is not on the relationship of the groom and the bride. Elsewhere in the Bible it is. Here it centers on the delay. It's the delay of the bridegroom and what that delay reveals about the character of these ten younger women. Some are ready, some are not. That's the focus. That's what we saw last week in part from chapter uh, 24, verse 44. Therefore, you must be ready, Jesus said, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. And so what do we read in verse 10? When the bridegroom came, those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and then the door was shut. Those who are given attention in the story here, who hope to meet the bridegroom, join the procession, go back to the... uh, Bridegroom's home for the feast celebration are these ten virgins, ten young women, unmarried, bridesmaids perhaps. And Jesus captures the whole scene in the early verses of the parable. He says the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. They took their lamps. They went out to meet the bridegroom. Five were foolish, five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now we know, as we've read the story, how the actions of these young women are going to be proven in the end. But Jesus reveals their character right at the beginning by telling us there's five wise and five foolish. Five who are sensible, five senseless. Jesus used the same word uh, for wise back in chapter 24, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household? When these ten young women go out to meet the bridegroom, the distinguishing characteristic of the five who are wise is that they believe they may have to be long in waiting They believe there may be a delay. They believe they may need to wait. That they may have to exercise long suffering. That what they've set out for may not be in their timing. It may not happen in their way. That's why they bring extra oil. The foolish bring no reserve oil. One author said, this lack of provision might have worked if the bridegroom's return had been soon. But this is about how you're prepared in waiting. We are in, for sure, a time of waiting. I wanted to say I can't wait until things return. But but we're called to wait. How I would long for things to return just as they were six months ago. That's for us as a a ministry, as a corporate church, but individually how all of us have been tried in various ways of what what waiting is to look like. So there's an emphasis upon the wisdom one is to have in knowing how to wait. Uh, We might call it wise waiting. What does it mean to wait upon the Lord? This parable certainly illustrates the value of waiting with wisdom But throughout the Scriptures, there's an emphasis upon waiting upon the Lord. Particularly in the Psalms. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong and in your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 7, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for Him. Or Isaiah 40, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. There are many times, many seasons in people's lives in which they are Called to wait. Many different things that we are perhaps called to wait for. Some waiting is not so difficult. A person who's waiting for an hour or two before lunch or dinner, they're feeling those hunger pains. Uh, a younger person waiting a couple days until that birthday comes. But, but in some ways, those are e- easier kinds of waiting. You know that something wonderful is coming, just hold out a little bit longer. But some waiting is very, very difficult. The spouse or the child, waiting week after week, month after month for their mom or their dad or their husband to return from a year-long deployment. Every day, mark it off the calendar. That's hard, long waiting. Time slows down during certain seasons. Or the painful waiting amidst an illness in which the prognosis is in question. What all waiting brings is long-suffering. The difference between the Christian's long-suffering in waiting and that of the world's is that the Christian is to wait with an eye to the Lord. With a listening ear to the Word of God with a heart that is yielding to his timing and his ways. And what all wise waiting has is hope. Hope. Confident anticipation of the goodness of God that he will pour out, his grace that is coming. Why did the five wise bridesmaids bring reserve oil? because they believed that if the bridegroom was delayed and they would have to wait long, that he would still come. He He will come. So they were hopeful. And that when he came, they would have the oil to light their lamp and join the procession. So their waiting was with an eye toward him. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It fills a person with new life and hope about what is coming. And it gives them the sufficient readiness to be prepared to join him in the procession when he comes. What brings a particular sharpness or a cutting edge to this parable is how similar the wise and the foolish actually appear in the story. They have almost everything in common. Uh, First, all ten have been invited, and all ten have responded to the invitation to attend the wedding and the banquet. Uh, There may have been some who didn't receive invitations, or those who refused the invitation, but all ten of these young women responded. Secondly, they all have kind of an outward love for the bridegroom, it appears. The story commences in verse 1 by telling us that ten virgins took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. They set out to meet him. So there's a response. There's outward interest. Uh, All of them took lamps. Finally, all ten, upon the delay of the bridegroom, become drowsy. They all fall asleep. It's not as if only the five foolish fell asleep. They all became drowsy, weary, tired. They all fell asleep. What's the one essential difference? Well, the text tells us that the five who were wise brought flasks of oil. That is, additional oil for their torches, lamps. Well, a lot of ink has been poured out in commentaries over the centuries about what is the oil? What represents the oil? Some have said, well, it's the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Spirit elsewhere in Scripture is associated with oil. So some have said they needed more Holy Spirit. Others have said it's works, the good works that God prepares for his people to do, that faith without works is dead. You need more good works. Others have said it's the grace of God. We need more of the mercy of God. Well, the truth is the text does not tell us what represents the oil. But whatever the oil represents, it is the distinguishing mark between those who will be able to join the bridegroom, participate in the procession, and enter into the marriage feast, and those to whom the door will be shut. The late pastor James Boyce says we should think of the oil as an inward preparation. I like what John Calvin says. He says, the five wise women, upon setting out to go and meet the bridegroom, have all the supplies necessary for completing the course of their life. The sense of the perseverance of the saints. The destiny, the future of all these young women are sealed at the beginning when they set out to meet the bridegroom. Some possess what's necessary to endure, to persevere, to make it to the end. Some do not. Here's how I would like to capture it. The oil, perhaps, represents such a faith, such a desire, such a love to be with the bridegroom that one will do whatever is necessary to ensure that when he comes, I will be found in him. Because he is my life. He is my portion. However long he may be delayed... When he comes, I'll be ready, because he defines my life. The oil represents what is first in their life. Maybe we can say it's the saving mercy of God. It's the regenerating work of the Lord. It's new birth. But this is life in him. Listen to these words. There is a coming to Christ, just as I am, without one plea, that is right and good where it is sincere trust in him. But there's also a coming just as I am without one plea that is wrong, where it is careless disbelief masquerading as faith. All ten appear similar. One has sincere faith, one does not. When the bridegroom comes, it's too late to prepare, too late to get ready. We're told in verse 6, which is really the center of the parable, when it says, but at midnight, literally in the middle of the night, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Whatever we are building our house upon now is what will be tested and proven later. As Thomas Kelly said, Uh, When the rains descend, when the floods come and beat upon your house, it is well nigh too late to build a different house. You go into the house you have and pray it is upon the rock. We see the foolish women. They ask for oil from the wise women, but it's not transferable. There's not enough. They needed to have prepared themselves. But for those who are ready, verse 10, They went into the marriage feast with him. When I think about these five wise younger women upon the invitation to go and meet the bridegroom, I think to myself, I think to myself, they considered their lives. Perhaps they thought about everything that defined and made up their life, their friends, their family, their general lot in life, their calling, the work that they are to do. the the goals and the aims that they might have, the the bright future that they may think about. And they considered everything that made up their life, and they thought to themselves, that's not enough. That's not enough to define my life. I need to be with the bridegroom. I need to be found in him. And so, he is first. I'm going to do what is necessary for that to be first in my life, to set the eyes of my heart upon that, to be prepared for that, to set the aim of my life upon him because he is my portion. And we're going to be singing in a bit, 469, how sweet and awesome is the place. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room, when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, how we thank you for uh, the power of your word, the clarity of your word. Uh, this calling from your Son, our Lord, and our Master to be prepared, to be ready, uh, to meet you. And we pray, Lord, that you, by your grace, uh, would so fuel our lives that indeed we would be founding, founding and finding our life upon the rock of Jesus Christ, that you would fill us with joy and anticipation uh, for that day but Lord, that we would not wait to prepare that our lives would be ready now because we desire to have life in you. And do that work in us, Lord, as we uh, wait as your children with wisdom before it can be a long delay. And Lord, in that time, shape us in the character of your Son, Jesus Christ.